I'm preaching this morning through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so we're in chapter 3, verse 18 through 23, and the title of my sermon is The Critical Problems of a Critical Person. And someone said, wow, for Mother's Day, huh? And so I said to that person, I said, well, maybe the critical person is not the mother. Maybe it's the child. So there you go. Maybe, the, maybe you apply that to yourself. Well, the mothers have, have joys in their life, many joys, but they also deal with many problems. Sometimes those problems are joys. They're called children. And, uh, but mothers deal with problems like boys breaking their arms and their girls having relationship issues and Students at the table, at the kitchen table, trying to figure out their math homework. And of course, children quarreling and fighting. I thought to introduce this sermon today about the critical problems of a critical person, I would start with a story about mothers. There was a a little girl and her brother who fought a lot and they were bickered and they constantly at each other's throats. And uh, and so uh, one day the little girl was in the kitchen and Her mom was doing the dishes, and she looked up at her mom, and she said, Mom, I see those white hairs. Where did you get those? Why do you have those white hairs? Where did you get those white hairs from? And her mother smiled, and she artfully replied, Well, every time you and your brother argue, I get another white hair. And if if you both got along more, my hair would stay this beautiful brown. And so the little girl looked at her, and she thought, and she thought, and after a while, she said, Mama, how come all of Grandma's hair are white? (laughs) Mothers often deal with children fighting and arguing in the home, and unfortunately, fighting, contention, problems are in every home. They're in marriages, they're in the workplace, And unfortunately, they happen in the church as well. In our text today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23, Paul addressed those in the church who were quarreling and being divisive. The church of Corinth had groups of people who were not unified around Christ and the gospel. They were unified around themselves. In fact, I want you to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 and notice where he starts talking about this. He introduces really this book, this letter, with this idea. Look at verse 10. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, speaking to the church, brothers and sisters, church family, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And he said in verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, among those in the church here, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So here you have this church that's divided. And it's God's desire for the church to, to live and relate in harmony. And that means we have a unity within our group, within our church, but also there's a diversity. And I've said this before, I love the singing of the congregation because I think it actually represents the unity that we are to have as a church family. We are unified singing one song, one 
tune, one set of lyrics, unless the men have a part and the girls have a part. But other than that, we're one. But yet there's a diversity. You have, you have some who are singing high and some who are singing low, some who are singing on key and the others. But you have some who are harmonizing. You have the piano and the guitar and the drum and the violin. and all. So it's, it's a diversity, but yet there's a unity. And God wants our church to be like that. To be one in unity and in a harmony of love, but also with a diversity of people with different backgrounds and different ages and different stages in life and different experiences and different economic situations. And the church that glorifies God is one that relates in a harmony of love. The church that dishonors God has people or a person in it that lives in discord. And so the church of Corinth had this arguing, this quarreling, this, this gossiping, these problems within the church. They, they were using Paul and Apollos and even Christ as like mascots who, who represented their positions. And really their cause they were championing was themselves. And the truth is, this is how the world operates, isn't it? The, this is how marriages that are worldly operate a husband doesn't like what his wife does or doesn't do, and so he punishes her by not talking to her and watching TV and giving her the silent treatment, and he's going to try to win. Does he ever really win doing that? No. That's the foolishness of this world. How about a, maybe a wife is upset at her husband, and so she is going to go complain to her friends or to her mother, and, and so she's going to try to help the situation by unloading upon someone else. Does that ever really help the situation either? No. no. Yeah, Paul, thank you for that testimony. <laughs> <laughs> Employees at work sometimes try to change a situation by lying or manipulating or maligning someone else. Maybe you're in a friendship with someone and, and in order to be a better friend, you're going to criticize someone else to make you look better. And the point is, isn't that how the world operates? And the problem is when we bring that into the church here, when we bring that into our relationships, in fact, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. Because I want to kind of build up and show you that this is the pattern that the, the church had. In 1 Corinthians 3, 3, he says, you are living like the world. Verse 3 of chapter 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? In other words, like the world. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Are you not just being like the world? And so Paul was calling the church to live like the church, to live like Christ wanted them to live. And he warns them in, in verse 16, he transitions from talking about how we are to build each other up, how we're to serve one another, to warning those who are tearing the church down, who are fighting with each other. Verse 16, he says, do you not know that you, and that's the plural you. In other words, that's a plural. So he's saying the church, you as the church are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. That's the church. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy 
him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So God's gathered church. We are God's temple because the spirit of God dwells within us. And if anyone goes against and tries to hurt God's people and God's church, it's like they're trying to tear down God's temple. And he says, it's very serious. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And this leads us to our text of 1 Corinthians 3, 18. And here Paul examines the heart of this person who is critical, who is contentious, and he calls him or her to repentance. And Paul here is like a, a master surgeon who takes out the scalpel of God's word and he cuts open the heart of the critical person and re, he reveals what's inside. And so what does he reveal? The problems are in the heart of a critical person. Well, first of all, the first problem is, is self-deception. Self-deception. A critical, contentious person can be self-deceived to think he's doing God's will, but actually, he's not. And so he must confess his sin before the God who sees. Notice verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. And again, Paul turned from transitioning to speaking about the to the church, about edifying one another and serving one another to now warning and reproving those who were going to pull down and destroy God's church through, through arguing and fighting and acting like the world. And if you notice in verse 17, he, he uses plurals and singulars on purpose. In verse 17, he says, if anyone... And in the Greek, that's a singular. So it's like he's saying, if a person, he's like saying, if you are doing this, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And again, that's singular for God's temple is holy and you, that's plural, that's the church are that temple. And then in verse 18, he kind of, he goes into speaking specifically about this, who this person is, who is this singular person? Verse 18, let no one, again, that's a singular, let no one, that particular person deceive himself. And he keeps going on. In fact, look in verse, uh, look on in verse 18. He says, if anyone among you, so again, a singular, if anyone among you, that's the group, that's the church. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool. And there we see the next verb there, the next command to this person, to this critical person. Verse 21 is the last command we find in this chapter. And he says, let no one, again, the singular person, let no one boast in men. And this, this text cuts into the heart of the critical, contentious person with three imperatives. And it's like Paul was pointing the finger at the critical person and saying to him, you don't be deceived anymore. You become a fool by humbling yourself under God's wisdom. You stop boasting. So the first significant problem is self-deception. Let no one deceive himself. So what is deception? What is self-deception? Well, deception is thinking something is true, but actually what you're thinking is true is not true. It's false. It's being convinced your way is right, but actually you're going the wrong way. A couple weeks ago, I decided to drive to the master's uh, college, and I don't know my way there without a GPS. And so I thought I would just try to find it. 
And eventually I found myself, found myself going the wrong way. Well, I was convinced I was going the wrong way until I saw these roadblocks and the signs that say, do not enter. And I realized, yeah, I'm not going the right way here. And I turned my GPS on and realized I was going the wrong way. And I was deceived. I was convinced. I, I'm pretty certain it's over here. Yeah, it was not over there. It was the opposite way. And self-deception is fooling oneself by willfully not accepting the truth. And, and so it's like you're going one way, the GPS says, go the other way, and you're going, no, I'm going to continue to go this way. Now, sometimes the GPS is wrong, but the point is, it's, it's knowing what is right, but you're saying, you know what, I'm going to do my way anyways. And so Paul pointed the finger at the critical, contentious person and said, you are self-deceived. Now, here's the question, who is that in this room? And I think sometimes we, we look at something like this and we, say, we think, okay, well, that's, that's not me. <laughs> well, probably we should back up because he's talking to the church, right? That's the problem with self-deception, self isn't it? If you're deceived, then you don't see it. And I think the point here is when he's saying in his command, do not be deceived, I think he's saying we all need to ask ourselves the question, am I deceived? And so I think Paul wants us to ask ourselves, am I the one that Paul is pointing to here? I mean, three times in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul will warn the church, do not be deceived, which means what? We're all susceptible to deception. Now, just think about this for yourself. Do you think you're easily deceived? We're going to do a little game and see if you are, okay? I'm going to tell a little story. There's buses that go around see me here, and uh, they pick up people. And so I want you to imagine tomorrow a bus is going to pull up down the street here, and it fills up with people. I mean, it's, it's packed in there. And the last person to get on that bus is a blind man. He's old, he's blind, and he's trying to find a seat. And there's no seats, and no one's giving him a seat. And the, the bus goes ahead and starts pulling up down the road there. And, and he's, he's trying to stabilize himself, and he's trying to find a seat. No one's giving him a seat. And then a young man gets up and he says, hey, you can have my seat. And so the blind man is able to have a seat. Now, was that a kind deed by that young man? What do you think? Was that a kind deed? Oh, what if I were to tell you that young man was the bus driver? <laughs> and you see how one little bit of information like that can easily trick you, can easily deceive you. And the point of that is what? We are all easily deceived. In fact, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so what's the answer to how do you know if you're deceived? If, if my heart is deceived, how do I know? What's the answer? Well, verse 10 of Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. In other words, God is the only one who can truly reveal to us if we're deceived and he does so through his word, by his Holy Spirit. And so we must go before him and say, God, am I deceiving myself? And the church of Corinth claimed to do God's will. There were people in the church who were saying, I'm doing God's will. I'm, I'm gossiping about this person or criticizing this person or tearing down this person. But I'm doing it in the name of Christ. But they were deceived. Their desires, their goals, their methods, their attitudes were worldly. And the critical person might think he's doing God's will, he's deceived. He must confess his sin before God, the God who knows. And I think as a church, we all must commit 
to confessing our sin to God when the Holy Spirit pricks our heart. You may be at home and maybe you're arguing a point with your spouse or against your parents or with a sibling. I mean, and you know you're right, right? Therefore, it justifies everything, right? If you know you're right, you can yell, you can scream, you can stomp. At least that's what we think. Maybe what we should do is stop and pause and ask God, God, am I deceived right now? Am I using the world's ways to do, quote unquote, your will? Is it really just about me and, and win, my winning and my ego? Or is, or is it about you and your glory? Or maybe you're having a conversation with someone and, and it turns negative and, and it's true. Maybe we should stop and, and ask ourselves and really pray to the Lord and say, God, am I being deceived right now? Am I, am I really ministering grace right now to the hearer or am I just projecting my pain and my, my bitterness and I'm just enjoying, frankly, criticizing someone? So all of us, I think it would be good to ask ourselves, are we deceived? In fact, here's what I want to do right now. Let's just, let's just pray. And you're seeing right now, would you ask the Lord that? Would you say, Lord, it, will you show me in my heart if I, if I am living, maybe not every part of my life, but maybe some parts of my life where I'm deceived? Let's pray to the Lord right now. In your seat, would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that you will help us to see with your word, by your Holy Spirit, when we are deceived, when we are tricked by Satan to go our own way, to believe his lies, to fall into his traps, and not to believe you. Lord, please rescue us from this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The second problem of a critical person is self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. A critical person is self-exalted with human wisdom, but he must humble himself under God who alone is wise. Look at verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Notice he thinks he is wise in this age. So we're dealing with a way of thinking, a way he views himself, and he thinks he's wise in this age according to the world's wisdom, which begs the question, what is the world's wisdom? Well, the world's wisdom looks to the self, doesn't it? It's, it's this self-centered, individualistic wisdom. It's this wisdom that says, you must listen to me, I must be heard, my opinions must be championed, and I will fight for what I want. The world says, look within your heart, and whatever you want, that is what you should fight for. Do what is best for you. And, and notice the central figure in that whole thing is what? Is who? It's me. It's self the wisdom of the world is centered around me, centered around self. It's, it's fighting for my glory, my rights. It's living in my strength. It's trusting myself. And the wisdom of God is counter to that. Because who is at the center of the wisdom of God? It's God. The wisdom of God says, don't look within yourself. Your heart's deceitful. Look up to God. He is holy. 
And when you see the holiness of God and really look in his word and you see how holy he is, you look in yourself and you go, Lord, I need to be rescued. The wisdom of God says you don't need to try to fight for yourself. You need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God says that you need to be redeemed. You don't need affirmation. I just need someone to affirm who I am. No, you need to be saved. And Jesus came to save us. And that's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God says we live for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves. And so this person, they have this, this mentality, this way of thinking that is according to the way of the world. And look at verse 19. He says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. The word folly means moron. I mean, it's, it's a word that describes someone in a state of mental derangement. Literally, you're crazy. Honestly, have you ever been in an argument with someone? Or maybe you're watching someone in an argument and you think, they're crazy. And that's God's view of us when we follow the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world didn't work for Cain. Remember Cain, when he used anger and hate to try to hurt his brother and win? Cain was cursed. The wisdom of the world didn't work for Haman, who plotted against Mordecai and Esther and the Jews. He was hanged on his own gallows. The wisdom of the world didn't work for Peter when he lied and denied to try to save his own skin. The wisdom of the world didn't work for Judas, who betrayed Christ to get rich. He ended up killing himself. The wisdom of the world didn't work for Ananias and Sapphira, who deceived the church so they could be popular. God killed them. The wisdom of the world won't work in your marriage, it won't work in your parenting, it won't work in your life, and it certainly won't work in the church of Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because the wisdom of the world is centered on ourself. The wisdom of the world is folly, it's moronic with God. And in verse 19, Paul gives two Old Testament texts to support this truth that the wisdom of the world is folly. Look at verse 19, he says... For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. This is a quote from Job chapter 5, verse 13. This is a quote from Eliaphaz, the Temanite. Remember that guy? Remember Job? He was on the ground in sackcloth and ashes and in sorrow. He lost his children. His business was destroyed. His health was deteriorating. And Eliaphaz sat down to counsel him with two other friends. And they said, Job, you're obviously sinning against God. That's why this is happening. God is punishing you. Something's wrong. God has caught you. And then, and he said, God catches the wise in their own craftiness. So obviously that's you. And was his counsel true? Well, what he said is true. God does catch the wise in their craftiness, but his application was not true. God was not punishing Job. God was testing him. He was refining his faith. He was strengthening his faith. And Eliphaz had no right to play God, to sit in the place of God. He was a fool. And what Eliphaz was doing was he was exalting himself in his pride and saying, you have a problem. I'm the good boy here. You're the bad boy here. And the irony of the story is, at the very end, God rebukes him. Job 42, 7, the Lord had spoken these words to Job. And the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you. 
and against your two friends. Why? For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Do you know it's possible that people in the church can fight for the church, but really it's all about them. That people can do what they are even maybe in their own mind considering this is God's work and they do it in a worldly way and really it's all to elevate themselves. They're fighting for self-exaltation. They're pontificating. That's what Eliaphaz did. He used the truth about God to advance himself and his own wisdom. It was all pride. And at the end, God came to him and his anger was revealed against him. And his wisdom was shown to be folly. And what's interesting, it's not that what he said was inaccurate, was untrue. It was how he applied it and really in his heart, how he exalted himself. The other text he uses here is Psalm chapter 9, uh, Psalm 40, so Psalm 94, sorry, Psalm 94, 11. Look at verse 20, Psalm 94, 11. He says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are Futile. So Paul changed two words in this verse here. In the Old Testament verse actually reads this. The Lord knows the thoughts of man. Paul changed that to wise. That they are but a breath. And he changed that to futile or empty. And he, he, the point is he's, he did that to, to apply it to this situation. And he's saying, listen, the world's wisdom is short-lived. It's but a breath. It's empty. It, it actually leads to nothing but destruction. So what's the answer for a person who is is critical and contentious? Well, he must humble himself under the God who alone is wise. Notice verse 18. The middle of the verse says, let him become what? A fool. Let him become a fool before God, a fool by the world's standards. He proclaims himself to be wise But actually, true Christianity is not pride, it's humility. Humility before God, humility before others. And we must all confess, we must all confess that we are fools before God. Our way is not the right way. God's way is the right way. Jesus is the way. Our hearts need to be redeemed by Christ. And really, I think when he says, let him become a fool I think he's talking about the gospel. He's saying, listen, you need to repent and believe in Christ. And you confess that what you thought was right was actually wrong. You confess that your righteous deeds done in your own strength and for your own glory are actually nothing but sinful, filthy rags. That you lose your life so you can find it. That you give up your life so Christ can save it. You surrender to win. You die to live. You become a fool to have God's wisdom. And that's the way of the Lord, isn't it? And friend, if you're in here without Christ, you're going your own path and you're thinking, this is, this is the right way. And you're far from God. Well, that is leading to emptiness. And ultimately, because you're a sinner, because you've rejected God, it leads to hell. So God calls us to confess our our way is foolish and to turn in faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He alone is wise. He alone saves and we need to be saved. And then the third critical problem of a critical person is self-confidence. 
A critical person places his confidence in people and things, but he must place his confidence in God who possesses all things. Look at verse 21. We find this last problem here. So let no one boast in men. And then he gives the reason for all things are yours. Let's first look at the negative of verse 21. So let no one boast in men. This is a command to stop looking to people, maybe even associations to people or, or positions or even yourself for security, for confidence, for significance. Stop, stop boasting in people. Stop using people for self-confidence. And we do this all the time, don't we? Probably the simplest example is if you go to a children's playground and you see the, the cool kids on the playground, maybe the, the big athletic cool kid on the playground and all the kids want to be on his team. They want to be friends with him. And all the other kids that are on his aren't on his team or aren't friends with him, they're the losers of the group. And the idea is that you, that if you are connected to the, the cooler kid, if you're a part of his team, that you have more significance. And so you place your confidence in that person. And as adults, we realize how foolish it is to, to think your significance is determined by another person like that. Like we tell our kids, come on, that doesn't matter what that person thinks. You know, you don't have to be in the cool crowd. But actually, we do this as adults too, don't we? We brag about what school we went to, or we know this person, or we hold this theological position. And we boast in a way that places our confidence and our significance in those people and those things. And we can do that in such a way that we, we exalt ourselves up and we use those things to prop ourselves up. And in the end of the day, we are looking for security and sufficiency and confidence in that thing or in those people. I was talking to a friend a couple of months ago who was a pastor for many years and he no longer is a pastor. And he said one of the most difficult things he was struggling with in the past few weeks had been when people would ask him, what do you do for a living? That's a common question we ask people. And he said when he told them, basically, you know, he, he had another kind of job, but not a pastor, he felt demoralized. He felt not really valuable, felt kind of worthless. He was kind of embarrassed by it because he had put so much of his identity and his importance into that position, to that title. And he actually was saying kind of what a blessing it is for God to humble him in that way and, re and realize how much of his identity, how much of his pride was in the having that title and be able to say, I do this. I think we all kind of have that problem in many different ways. We, we can think that my importance, my significance, my confidence is based upon who I'm able to boast in, what I'm associated with, what my titles are, what my positions are, what my assets are. But Paul said, stop doing that. We don't need to boast in men to give us security, to give us confidence. So therefore, how do we, how do we respond to that? How do we turn from that? Well, he says that we must stop placing our confidence in people must place our confidence in God who possesses all things. Look at the end of verse 21. For all things are yours. What does that mean? All things are yours. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, remember those were people that they were arguing over. They were like their mascots or the world or life or death or the present or the future 
all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, what does all that mean? Well, good question. The logic goes like this. I want you to look at the end of verse 23. He says, Christ is God's. So God's, God the Father. So God the Father, he owns everything. God the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, created the world. God purchased the right to rule over everything through Christ's work on the cross. And that's what it means at the end of verse 23 when he says, Christ is God's. So Christ is in relationship to God the Father, right? They're, they're one and three. And the Father has given authority to Christ to rule as the King and Lord over all things. That's Philippians chapter 2, right? He is highly exalted. Christ is highly exalted by, by the Father, and so the Father has given him authority to own and to rule over everything. And so what does that include? I mean, what does everything include? Well, obviously everything. Well, he tells us some of those everythings. In verse 22, he says it includes those who teach the church. I mean, it includes God giving you a church, but also gifts of pastors and teachers like Paul and Apollos and Cephas, or that's the name Peter. So Christ sent those gospel teachers to bless the church, Christ rules over all things like, verse 22, the world, the, uh, or life, and, and death, and the present, and the future. Now, you look at the, the list of those five things. Is there anything else? I mean, that's pretty much everything, right? In other words, Christ rules over everything. He owns it all. He rules over it all. I mean, think about the world. The world includes every person, everything, Visible and invisible, Christ owns and rules over the world. He is the supreme authority. Christ owns and rules over life. He created life. He made physical life. He gives us the gift of eternal life. He owns and rules over death. I mean, you can't live a day longer than he decides. The book of Psalms says every day in his book is a day of your life is written in his book. He has your death day already set. You can't change it because he is the king and owner of even death. In fact, even more so, he conquered death through his death and resurrection, right? So now he actually rules over death through resurrection, Christ owns and rules over the present. That's everything happening on earth right now. That means what's happening in Washington, D.C. and the White House. That means what's happening in, in California. Eek, right? That means what's happening in our city. That means what's happening in your life. Christ rules over it. He owns it all. And then also, it also means the future. He says, the future. So Christ owns and rules over the future. It means we don't have to worry about tomorrow or next week or whatever is happening in a couple months from now. He's got that too. So Christ rules and reigns over everything. And since the Father has given authority to the Son to own and to rule over everything, and since we are in a relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit, then all of that that I just talked about, all of that is ours. That's what he's saying. All of that is ours. Look at verse 21, the very end. For all things are 
yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So what does that mean that all are ours? Because even then you go, well, what does that mean? Well, it means this. Because Christ rules and owns everything, then his work in your life is such that he's coordinating all things under his sovereign plan for your good and for his glory. Let me say that one more time. Christ rules and owns everything. Therefore, his work in your life is such that he is coordinating all things under his sovereign plan for your good and for his glory. It means that all things that are happening in this world, in this, in this life, in death, the, the good things, what we might consider the bad things, all of it are ours that God is using in our life. And actually what it means is that we can look at problems, even problems within a church, and we can look at it, we can go, oh, not, oh, that's a bad problem. We can say, you know what, God, you are using those things for us. Like all of those are ours because you own and you rule over everything. And it's, it's, it changes how we view life. This view of life changes how we operate. No longer do we need to find significance in those things like that. That's what, there's where I find security and confidence. No longer do we need to fret about this issue or that politician, but we can rejoice that he owns everything and Christ has put those things in our life for our good. And that includes California, right? Amen. It includes what's going on in the White House. I mean, we, we pray that God will do something else, but whatever happens, we also trust that all of that is ours for our good, for his glory. Now, the question is, how does this apply to fighting in a church, right? And that was the question I had at the very end. Well, let me give an illustration that maybe will help us out. I want you to imagine a family is has Christmas Day, and the kids all get these toys. You know, there's Legos, and there's these toy uh, swords, and whatever else the kids get all these plastic things. And the parents gave all those presents to those kids to enjoy, right? That's why parents do that. Some do it for bribing, but hopefully you do it for them to enjoy that. And the parents will say they go away, you know, because it's kind of stressful Christmas morning. So they go away and for a couple hours and they come back and they walk into the room and they see the kids fighting. You know, one saying, I open this, it's mine, I get this. Another one's throwing Legos, you're such a mean person, you know. And they're all screaming at each other and they're yelling at each other. I have this. And so they're, they're boasting, they're quarreling, they're arguing. So the dad might come in, he sits them all down and he calms everything down. And maybe he says something like this, what are you guys doing? Why are you boasting and fighting with these toys? You're, you're exalting yourself with these things we've given to you. Do you not realize that all these things are yours? And what's the idea? All these things are yours for your benefit. And Christ owns and rules over all things. And he's given us all things for our good. All things in our life are ours by God through Christ for our good. And that's why it's so ridiculous to, to boast in things and people, to divide over associations and titles and positions. And, and again, you can go back to my sermon in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We talked about doctrine. Like that's, we're talking about different things. We're not talking about things that are clear in the scripture. We're talking about relationship problems. And it's so ridiculous to boast in those things 
you didn't gain those things in your own strength. You don't rule over those things by self-rule. God gives those things to us and to our church as gifts to bless us. And so when people divide up and they say, well, I like this Sunday class teacher, but that guy I don't really like very much. Wait a second. They're both gifts from God, right? And, and this person, they, have, they are gifted in a certain way, and, and maybe it's not blessing you in the way that you need, but they have other ways they can bless you, right? And, and the point is, instead of criticizing and, and pushing that person down and saying, ah, I don't like that, it's like taking God's gift, it's like throwing it across the room and saying, I don't care about that. But no, God has given us those things for our good, for his glory. And so when we, when we criticize one another or we boast in one another, we are sinning against God. But instead, we need to see that God has put those people and those things in our life for our good. And it's not just gospel teachers. It's all things, right? It's life and it's death. It's the problems. It's the blessings. And instead of being critical, I mean, like, I don't like this and this is happening in this way, we go, we step back and we say, Lord, you put these things in my life. So here we go. How do I trust you? How do I look at these things as blessings in my life? How can these things help me to grow to be more like you? Well, I don't really like this person in the church. Wait, Lord, a second. There, you've put them in my life. You're the owner and the ruler. So you've put them in there for a blessing. How can I, how can I love them? How can I grow to be more like you? How, can that be put, how is that put in my life for my good and for your glory? So a critical person places his confidence in people and things, but, but we must place our confidence in God who possesses all things and has given those things for our good. And so let's end just considering what God has for us. I think we should probably ask ourselves some questions. Am I deceived? I think there's times when we are in our home and we're operating in a worldly way that we probably have to say that's probably a yes. Maybe sometimes even how we think in the church. So ask God, God, show me the truth. God, give me the courage to do what's right. Am I living in a way that is worldly? I mean, am I living in a way that exalts myself, that life is about me? When I speak and I act, am I exalting myself? And if that's the case, we go before the Lord and we say, Lord, I confess this is true. And I know you forgive and you cleanse. And so I trust in Jesus Christ. You're still my Savior, my Lord. We bring that before him. Am, am I placing my confidence in people? Am I a boaster in people? Or do I place my confidence in God? Do I praise God for his work in my life? And do I see the, even some of the problems in my life as God's gift to me for my good to make me more like Christ? And if not, I need to confess that and ask the Lord, Lord, give me strength. I think when you end a sermon like this, what we realize when we start off, we say the critical person, we think, yeah, that's not me. And think at the end, we go, Lord, we all need help. Isn't that the truth? Let's go before the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask Jorge and the music team to come up. But I want us all to respond to the Lord right now. Text of scripture like this can kind of beat us down a little bit. Or maybe a lot. That's not what God wants for us. Bible says that he gives grace to the humble. So what God wants in this, he wants us to be humble before him, to confess 
our sin and to rejoice in our Savior. And so, Lord, and so friends, would you go before the Lord and confess that and find joy in him and reconciliation in Christ? And if you're in, if you're in here and you're without Christ, I mean, you, I think you're realizing that your way is foolish, right? It's not working for you. You don't have joy. <laughs> it's not going well for you. And the truth is, friend, at the end of your life when you die, you'll be separated from God forever. That's not what God wants. His desire is for you to repent and to turn to him in faith through Jesus Christ. You can call upon him in your seat.